Hey, everybody, it's Matt. Our Growing Greater podcast showcases inspiring stories of innovators, business successes, and transformational projects. And it's made possible in part thanks to the team at Ocean First Bank. As the largest community-based financial institution headquartered in central New Jersey, with branches located in 11 surrounding counties and growing, Ocean First Bank is poised for continued success as it expands in the greater Philadelphia market. Having completed five whole bank acquisitions in less than four years, the exciting spirit of innovation continues to define the team at Ocean First. With a focus on meeting the needs of middle market clients across northern Delaware, southern New Jersey, and southeastern Pennsylvania, Ocean First provides commercial and residential financing solutions, wealth management, deposit services, and so much more. Learn more at OceanFirst.com and join me in thanking Ocean First Bank for their support of our Growing Greater podcast. This is Growing Greater, Growing Greater, bringing you the stories of economic growth, job creation, and business success from across the 11 county community of Northern Delaware, Southern New Jersey, and Southeastern Pennsylvania. Now, here's Matt Gabry. I was asked to speak about how I forged my path. I could humble brag and share the Facebook post version one that airbrushes out giant potholes that swallowed me whole. Instead, I thought I'd use this prestigious forum to openly talk about my failures. Why? I want you graduates to know a secret. Failing is like farting. (laughs) It's natural. We all do it. We just don't like to admit it. So this is not your typical commencement speech. First and foremost, it's memorable and it's real and fun. Come with me back to 2018. Students from the University of Pennsylvania are gathered for their graduation ceremony. Dr. Vanessa Chan, she offers a practical perspective that every one of us can relate with. Failing is like farting. While lighthearted, it's so true. No one likes to fail. And we certainly don't like to discuss our failures. It's awkward, right? And no one really plans to fail. The reality is failure is part of life. It's a lesson everyone should appreciate and come to accept. Whether we're graduating kindergarten, high school, or college, starting a new company, or delivering on a work project. Vanessa, she wears many hats. She's an entrepreneur, an inventor, an engineer, a consultant, an investor, a mom, an educator, and so many other things. Throughout her personal and professional journey, she has focused on innovating. Vanessa has lived in several cities across the U.S. as a student and a professional and as a youth with her family. During her formative teen years, she and her family lived in Hong Kong, and each of these experiences helped position her as a leader and key influencer in the engineering, innovation, and entrepreneurship arenas, where she thrives at challenging the status quo and weaving together technology and business. 
Vanessa co-led the innovation practice at McKinsey & Company, helping corporations commercialize their technologies. She's also invented consumer products, most notably her tangle-free headphones known as Loopit, which landed her on NBC's Today Show and on QVC. Today, Vanessa is part of the team at the University of Pennsylvania, where she plays several roles, including professor in the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. True to the spirit of our program, Growing Greater, Vanessa joins us to share insights into her life and career journey. We begin with that question we all may struggle with answering, how she describes herself. I actually don't like to label myself. In fact, I don't like people labeling themselves because I think when you try to label yourself into being this or that provide titles, you're automatically pigeonholing what the possibilities could be. So I think the way to answer this is more, when I think about what I want to do, it's all with the angle of am I growing and am I learning and am I having fun and having an impact on those around me? That really is the basis of my North Star. And so when you take a look at what I'm doing right now, I do a lot of angel investments, which is really to help entrepreneurs who are trying to scale their companies. And I sit on several boards for startups where I'm helping them with their companies. I have started to do a lot of motivational speaking. And the reason why is I think people have been inspired by my story. And I was fortunate to give Penn Engineering's commencement address in 2018. And in it, I talked about how failing is like farting. It's natural. We all do it. We just don't like to admit it. And it started going viral. And then from that, a lot of companies asked me to come in and speak. And so that has become a part of who I am. And I really love that because I get a chance to, at scale, I've spoken to audiences which are a couple thousand people, so at scale, inspire people to uh, think differently. And now as a professor, it's coming full circle because there's nothing better than the gift of trying to really inspire the next generation. And so the incredible thing about being at Penn Engineering and as a professor is I spent a lot of time when I was in Kinsey with companies that were spending billions of dollars in R&D. And they were asking the question, how can our spend have more of an impact? And so what happens, I spent a lot of time with chief technology officers in their their organizations, and their organizations are comprised of people like me, people who went to academia and got their PhDs. And what I realized was that in academia, we spend a lot of time on the technology side, the hard science, and really trying to understand those questions. But no one ever really teaches in the academic side how to think about the ecosystem. So if you actually want to commercialize a new technology, there are all these other players and all these other considerations that you have to think about. You have to think about how does the real world work, what are the current applications that are out there today, and how is your solution better? And I wish someone had taught that to me when I was at Penn or at MIT because I would have done things completely differently during my academic time as a student. And so right now, the way I'm having impact is really trying to build that awareness of the real world in the engineers, and on top of it, really teach the real-world skills you need to thrive. So the thing that's tricky is that in academia, there is an obsession with GPA. It's true even when you're in high school, you need a really strong GPA, really strong SAT scores to get into those elite colleges. And when you're in college, that's also your pursuit. And I'm now the undergraduate chair from the Child Science and Engineering Department, which means that my students in my department have to come to me if they want to take more course units than are allowed by design. And when I talk to these students, they say, why do you want to take 
this many courses, if your normal course load is five, why are you trying to take seven and a half? It's because they're trying to show they can take a lot of classes and still get a high GPA, which isn't a really good reason. And so I think there's a need to really share with them what is required to have an impact in the world. It's much uh, less focused on GPA. In fact, I would argue that GPA really doesn't matter in the real world. It might matter for your first job, but what really matters is having integrity, having the ability to network, having the ability to look at an abstract problem and figure out how to put some structure around it to make progress. And those are the kinds of things I'm trying to do right now in Penn Engineering, and that's how I'm trying to have an impact. And so I know that's a very long-winded question around, you know, who am I, what do I do? But for me, it's really about trying to inspire people to think differently and to have an impact and to look at the status quo and see if we can do things differently. And so I'm taking on opportunities that are allowing me to do that. I really appreciate the fact that you saw something in your undergraduate years that you wished was different, meaning how do you commercialize something that you're learning in theory in a classroom environment? And you're now in a position to change that, and you're doing just that. And I wanted to pivot here to your experiences at McKinsey, but also your decision to pivot from your role at McKinsey, where you were very involved with leading the innovation practice out of the Philadelphia office, to choosing a new path at Penn. Yeah, so I had been at McKinsey for about 13 years. I was the first woman who was elected partner in the North America Chemicals practice. I was leading co-leading innovation with a couple of other my other partner friends at McKinsey, and it's interesting because when you've been at McKinsey for 13 years, that's a really long time. The average tenure for most McKinsey people is about two and a half years. And the reason why most people leave McKinsey to go on and work for clients or other organizations where they end up moving up the ranks. And so when you've been at McKinsey for 13 years, that's about four to five generations. And at the time, I didn't really feel like I was learning. I wasn't really growing. I knew how to do McKinsey studies. I knew how to write proposals. And I was doing some very creative things through innovation, but I just felt very stagnant. The really great thing about McKinsey is that we rarely have anyone actually retire from McKinsey. Most people do end up leaving. The question is when. And so as a result, there's always a lot of resources for you to go through some soul searching because people will go through this multiple times during the McKinsey career. Actually, most people actually go out and interview, go through that and realize, yeah, I really want to stay. And so it's not unusual for people to go through the cycles of whether not to stay or to leave. And so when I was going through this, they actually had an industrial psychologist work with me. His name was Dr. Tom. He gave me seven different assessments to do because at McKinsey were very analytical. And after doing about two hours of these assessments, we had a Skype call together. And he opens up the Skype call by saying, okay, you did your assessments. I look at your resume and everything that you're doing. I look at these and they don't match. How are you happy? And I was like, wait a minute. What do you mean they don't match? I've actually been you know, doing quite well here. I'm a partner. What are you seeing that doesn't match? He said, well, I'm seeing a very strong execution bike. You can get stuff done, which all senior corporate executives have to be able to do. But I see a towering creativity spike that I normally only see in artists. And so what are you doing to fulfill that side of you? Because I really don't see that in most corporate executives. And I told him that I bake cakes, I knit, I make jewelry, I do woodworking, I have a lot of hobbies, and I lead innovation for McKinsey, right? And so that's really creative. And he said, look, in the spectrum of the world, you found the most creative thing you could do at McKinsey, but in the spectrum of the entire world, there's probably a lot more you could do to fire up that side of your brain. And so he kind of planted the seed in my mind. 
that maybe in my next job, I really need to harness that creativity in a way that might not be possible in the corporate world. And during that time, I actually was helping my daughter's school. So my daughters go to Springside Chestnut Hill Academy, and we were helping them to build out their venture incubator. And my oldest daughter, who was in second grade at that time, had this invention called Hair Hugs, where it basically prevents her hair from getting caught in the zipper when she puts her winter jacket on. And she was going through the entire analysis around what she wanted to make hair hugs out of, understanding the types of materials, what it would cost, what she might be able to sell that for, and was preparing a pitch for Demo Day. The funny thing about her pitch was she refused to do it in PowerPoint because PowerPoint was boring. So she hand-drew all of her slides and had to have her teacher scan them in so she could give her, her presentation. And when I was watching her go through that journey and watching other students who are very young also going through that journey, it kind of dawned on me, like, wow, if these second graders can actually do this, why can't I do that? So I'm a MacGyver. I'm constantly making things to improve things around my house. So I have all these things that I've sewn or built to make my life a little easier. So I just started jotting down things that really bug me and then sketching out prototypes and just had the courage to leave and start my own one-woman show. And I had some focus groups, brought about a dozen of my different prototypes of things I actually made. And one of them people really loved, which were these tangles-free headphones that convert to a necklace. So I left McKinsey, uh, decided to start my company called Redesign and take these tangles-free headphones to market. So with my daughters, who were seven and nine at the time, as my board of directors and my advisors, we started doing the whole process of trying to bring something to market. So I went on Alibaba, sent out some RFPs, had samples sent to me from China. Kids and I kind of went through it to determine what the quality was, what we liked, what we didn't like. We found a supplier. We Skyped with her, eventually went to China, and I brought my kids with me to actually see Lupit being manufactured so they could go through the whole process. And during this time, I launched a Kickstarter campaign to see if there really was demand. I wanted to learn about social media, how do these types of platforms work. And it was really scary going through this process because I went from a partner that had a lot of support. So if my computer went down, there's a help desk I can call, to needing to figure everything out on my own. And the only people I really had to give me advice were my kids. And that was kind of by design because I wanted them to see what it was like for me to take a risk and try to bring something to market. And actually, when I was in China, I got a call from Today Show telling me that I had been selected to compete in America's Next Big Thing. And so got a chance to actually pitch my product twice on the Today Show, once in the semifinals and once in the finals, and to really get people excited about the product. And it led to a contract with QVC, so I ended up selling Lupit on QVC. And that was a pretty incredible journey. The space of that was about 18 months. And it was really neat because I really think an entrepreneurial mindset is something that the next generation needs. I had no idea before I did this how to actually show my girls how to be entrepreneurial because, quite frankly, having a corporate job is not entrepreneurial because you're getting a paycheck, right? You're not really taking that much of a risk compared to being a one-woman show and needing everything to work and all the stress behind trying to drive that. And what happened from then was I've always stayed close to my undergraduate mentor. And so Russ Composto, who's the undergraduate dean of the engineering school, gave me a call and said, hey, we have this new position open called Professor of Practice, where it's to really bring in people who have industrial experience onto our faculty to teach our students and to bring that real-world perspective. 
we have this opening for professor of practice for innovation entrepreneurship. You led innovation for McKinsey. You're now an entrepreneur. Would you consider becoming a professor? And I hadn't really thought about it, but I applied and I got the job. And I'm thrilled because my stars are all starting to align because now we actually get a chance to shape this next generation with a mindset and the kinds of skills I wish I had when I had graduated. Because when I graduated from MIT, I was actually looking to become a traditional professor. I actually had a first author science paper, which is one of the most prestigious journals in the research arena, and I was really groomed to becoming a professor. In fact, I was applying to postdocs and actually got a fellowship to Germany, an Alexander von Humboldt fellowship, to go and do my postdoctoral studies in Germany for two years. But while I was typing up my thesis, a friend of mine came by and said, hey, why don't you come with me to this McKinsey presentation? And I was like, what's McKinsey? It's like a consulting firm. I was like, no, no, I'm not interested at all. I'm really, you know, going to be a professor. Like, no, no, they have cocktail shrimp. You should come. So I was like, okay, I can't afford cocktail shrimp on my stipend of $18,000. So I went to the McKinsey presentation, met these amazing people, very analytical, social people, and so applied to McKinsey because they asked me to, and then lo and behold, I got the job. But I wasn't sure I wanted to leave academia because I yeah. love science and engineering, and I was doing quite well. So I ended up taking the postdoc and going to Germany for two years. And McKinsey said, that's totally fine. If you're staying in academia, we'll just hold your offer. If you decide to go into industry or become a professor, let us know. We'll, we'll retract the offer. But we're happy to hold it while you're doing a postdoc. And at the end of my postdoc career, I was kind of getting a little bit of an itch to understand what the real world was like. And so I called up my Ph.D. professor and said, look, I really think I want to do McKinsey for a few years because the world's really evolving and having that perspective on industry, I think would be helpful to any professor. So he said, okay, that's great. Let's hold a couple of your papers so you still have a publication trail. And why don't you go to McKinsey for two years? And as opportunities come up, I will share them with you. And so I said, sure, that's great. And I went, but the problem was my first study, I just fell in love with the work. My very first study was with a company that had a materials science angle to it. They had a gas sensor that was aimed for the automobile industry. They weren't sure what other markets it could go into. So I became the technical expert on that study, understood how the sensor actually was measuring socks, knocks, all these different types of compounds. And then we did a study to understand where in the world do you need to measure these kinds of analytes and can they actually launch a technology and commercialize it in different applications. And that really kind of became my thing at McKinsey. So literally nine months later, in fact, I was just cleaning out my boxes in the basement with the COVID lockdown. And I found yeah. a piece of paper from my professor that he had sent to me that was a faculty opening at Stanford. And he said, Vanessa, ready to leave McKinsey? Time to go. And I wrote back to him. Wow. I was like, Ned, I'm staying. I'm not, yeah. I'm yeah. not going to apply. And so, so when I came back to Penn to be a professor, he sent me a note and said it took you long enough because he always wanted me to be a professor. Oh, I love that. And what a great journey and what a great opportunity to have so many different paths you could choose. You still had the experience in Germany and you were able to join McKinsey. And now you're back in academia with some entrepreneurial and innovation moments along the way as well, which is one of the things I wanted to touch on because I know you're, you're not a huge fan of labels, but one that we could use here is Inventor because you've successfully created and launched a product called Loop It. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about how you came up with that. What's your inspiration for that? And how's it doing? So my 
inspiration for lupus was really based on my own pet peeves. And so there's a lot of things that when I kind of walk around in life, I'm like, oh, I wish they did this differently. Oh, this is a pain. Why don't we do this? And so that was what I was jotting down were things that kind of bugged me that were inefficiencies. And one of the most challenging things for me on conference calls was trying to untangle my headphones every single time I wanted to take a call. And so my tangled headphones were literally bugging me every single day. And so that was really my inspiration was how do I actually change that problem? And so the nice thing about being a scientist engineer is I actually went into the scientific literature to understand how knots were formed. And there's actually a lot of mathematical papers on the formation of knots. And through that, what I saw was that if you were actually to decrease the entanglement length of a string, in other words, make the string shorter, then the likelihood of a knot decreases. And if you can make the diameter of the string bigger, the likelihood of a knot forming also decreases. And so with that information, I was like started playing around with ways that you could actually fold a headphone in, in half so that the string is actually half the length. And so I started playing with, with physical mechanisms, and then I was like, well, maybe we'll, we'll use magnets so it's easy to release. And then with someone who has a big handbag where I lose everything, I, mean, I thought it'd be really nice if I could wear it as a necklace because that way I don't have to search for it. It's always around my neck. And so I started decorating because I make jewelry and making some prototypes, and that's really how it came about. And all my friends really loved that one, which is why I launched it. And in terms Very of how cool. it's doing right now, it's kind of puttering along. You know, as an entrepreneur and anyone who's an entrepreneur knows this, you get sales with as much work as you're doing behind it. And really right now my life has kind of evolved to much more around speaking and teaching and so forth. So I have my website. I'm doing sales there, and I have sales that spike, especially when I do things like this because everyone checks it out and they get some sales. But I'm not actively yep. marketing it. It's much more of a kind of side project right now. Let's take a quick break from our conversation with Vanessa and thank another team of innovators, colleagues who are constantly leading the way with new technologies. I'm talking about the team at Pico, advancing smart energy to provide safe, reliable, affordable, and clean energy and energy services for the customers and the communities they serve. Well, this is the focus of the professionals at Pico and how they embrace their work every day. Pico's legacy is their long-standing commitment to a culture of excellence and to innovation, their commitment to learning and to people, their customers, their communities, and their employees. As the largest electric and natural gas utility in Pennsylvania, the impact of the Pico team is remarkable. And not only do they serve approximately 1.6 million electric customers and more than 532,000 natural gas customers in southeastern Pennsylvania, their support and their active engagement with community initiatives, it's omnipresent. Pico is an Exelon company, and you can learn more at Pico.com. Support from Pico makes this podcast possible, and we are so appreciative. Now let's get back to our conversation with Vanessa. Vanessa, I want to shift gears slightly, and I want to talk about Philadelphia. And you're in a pretty unique position to share some insights, and I want to tie this all together with St. Louis, Hong Kong, Massachusetts, the greater Boston neighborhood with your time at MIT, a couple years in Germany, then back to Philadelphia. You have seen Philadelphia in a peak and in a valley. And I want to start with Philadelphia 1994. You're 17 or 18 years old. You fly here from Hong Kong to start your career at the University of Pennsylvania. What kind of preconceived notions, if any, 
did you have of Philadelphia and how have you continued to fall in and out of love with Philadelphia? Really great question. So when I came to Philadelphia, I was coming from a school that had 42 nationalities and we never saw race. Like my tag in high school was the nerdy physics girl who liked to do debates because that was the other thing that, that I was known for. And so I never actually saw people's colors or race. So when I came to Philly in the early 90s, it was really racially charged. And it was really shocking to me because I never saw color. And that was a really, really tough, a tough situation. Early 90s in Philly was also very dangerous. I don't know if you remember the McDonald's on the Penn campus was called McDeath because people had been shot in there. So you never went past 40th Street at a certain time. Multiple friends of mine had been mugged on campus, and I had sworn I would never live in Philly. (laughs) I will never live in Philly because this place is too dangerous. And the way we got back to Philly was actually really funny. So my husband, Mark Vanderhelm, he has a PhD in nuclear engineering, and when he was at MIT, he was teaching a course to utility executives around what is it that their power plants are actually doing. It was a three-week summer class. And through that, he met all the senior executives in many of the major utilities, one of which was Ian McLean, who told Mark, you need to come apply to Exelon when you're done, because I think you'd be fantastic for our organization. And so Mark applied. In fact, he went with me to Germany for one year, so he finished his PhD one year after me and did a postdoc with me in Germany and then applied to jobs in and worked in Ian's organization. So he worked for Exelon's power team. And I laughed when he got the job because I said, Mark, I said I would never live in Philly. And he was like, well, this is where I'm going. And so I joined the, the <laughs> McKinsey New York office, and we were actually doing long distance between New York and Philly. And then I eventually moved to Philly, and then I got the call when McKinsey wanted to start their Philadelphia office to actually help them form their Philadelphia office because I was already living in Philadelphia. And I will tell you that I love Philadelphia. Thank goodness Mark got that job with Exelon because it is the perfect place to have an impact. It's not too big. It's not too small. Everybody is rallying around each other. And I really am hoping to help catalyze a lot of work between universities, big companies, startups, the angel community, and I've been playing in all of those areas. And so I think we can be something unique on the national scene, and we just have to have all the right connections and all the right players together to make that happen. And to give you an example, my commencement speech, which I did, the very first call I got was from Comcast, where Comcast has a Innovator Circle Award that they give out every year, and they have a keynote speaker. So Tony Berner invited me to come give a speech to the Innovator Circle Award winners, And through that, he then said, why are Penn and Comcast not doing more things? And so I got to know Tony and his organization really well and got to become friends with Ruth Dawson, who leads the innovation labs for Comcast. And we just confirmed our first effort between Penn Engineering and Comcast in the area of drones. And so it's really exciting if I can help catalyze more of these kinds of things, because if we can get the public-private partnerships to be working, 
we really can do some incredible things here. Totally. And I'm so glad you mentioned that because it's a big part of what we at Select Greater Philadelphia are focused on. And you touched on it and you've seen this throughout your career. It's the spirit of collaboration. When we work together, Mm -hmm. great things happen. And really that spirit of innovation and collaboration is so deeply rooted in Philadelphia. And I'm glad to see that you're harnessing that with organizations like Comcast and others as well. So, Vanessa, in the interest of time and in the spirit of our program, I want to be respectful of your time. Where will Vanessa Chan be in the next three years, the next five years, the next 10 years? So, I think I will continue to inspire people. One thing we didn't talk about is the way I'm inspiring people right now is that my husband and I have a dual career partnership. So, he is mm-hmm. actually the head of energy, waste, and facilities maintenance in Walmart. And he lives in Arkansas during the week and has been doing that now for four years. And uh, he commutes back and forth between Walmart and Philadelphia. But because I'm so passionate about what I'm trying to build here, it makes sense for us. And so a lot of people have been asking us, how do we make it work, have a thriving marriage, be great parents, and have two careers, which have actually led to impact, right, that both of us had on broader ecosystems. And so I'm hoping to, in the next kind of three to five years, really inspire a new mindset around how working parents should be thinking about their own careers and that you can try to have it all if you think about things a bit differently. And so that's kind of the next area of inspiration I'm trying to drive on top of the other things with students and so forth. Because I really think that in order for us to be blossoming as a nation, we need men and women to be partnered equally in their marriage to uh, both raise the children as well as get things done around the house and so forth. And trying to change the way in which we think about that, I think, is really important. And so that's kind of the next uh, tranche of things I'm going to try to do. That's great. I love that. and I couldn't agree any more with that overall concept. And you have to be really proud of the relationship that you and your husband have built that seems to be working. And this next question I have for you. It's not perfect. Yeah, (laughs) right, right. This next question actually ties in, I think, a little bit to your inspiration around your very um, thoughtful presentation as the 2018 commencement speaker for the University of Pennsylvania School of Engineering. And I love that title. And, you know, whether you know it or not, I suspect you do. One of the things you're probably best known for, at least in the past couple of years, is that commencement speech failing is like farting. And if I remember correctly, and and you shared this story that, you know, that hit you when you were riding your bike one day through the neighborhood in uh, Northwest Philadelphia, known as Chestnut Hill here in Philadelphia. But it comes back to what is that thing that keeps you up at night? If you can change one thing, if you if you could really just say, you know, if we could get this right, we'd solve a lot of problems. Is there something like that that stands out for you? Yeah, I think if we could change everyone from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset, I think our world will be a better place. And a fixed mindset is one where you're very focused on outcomes. So that would be GPA, how much money you have, right, where your position is in society, and wanting to look good. So if you have a fixed mindset, you're very much afraid of failure because you're only going to do things that you're really good at and you're amazing at. A growth mindset is one where you're not judgmental of yourself or of others. You're excited about learning new things in the journey. You actually don't really believe in failing because failing is a judgment, right? You may have a hypothesis around something you want to achieve. You try to go after it. If it doesn't happen, it's not a failure. You just have to change tact on what you did and ask yourself, why didn't it work? 
And so I think if everyone can go from a fixed mindset to growth mindset, then I think they'll be happier, they'll have more of an impact in the world, and they won't be judging other people, including themselves. And so if I could have waved a magic wand, that's what I would want to do for people. Special thanks to Dr. Vanessa Chan for reminding us all that failure is part of life. We all do it, and in fact, we need to do it in order to advance our personal and professional paths to our continued success. Hey, please take a moment to rate and review our podcast and share it with friends and colleagues and family and through social media. Be sure to tune in to other episodes of Growing Greater wherever you listen to your podcasts or at selectgreaterphl.com slash podcast. Growing Greater is presented by Select Greater Philadelphia, a council of our Chamber of Commerce for Greater Philadelphia. Select is the business attraction organization for Northern Delaware, Southern New Jersey, and Southeastern Pennsylvania, and helps to grow the economic vibrancy of our collective community by attracting new businesses and new jobs to our region. Special thanks to our program producers, Elena Carmazin and Maricela Juarez, along with the great team of marketing and creative services professionals at our chamber. Thanks for listening, and be sure to tune in anytime and anywhere you get your podcasts or online at selectgreaterphl.com slash podcast.